Welcome everybody and good evening. Thank you for joining us. My name is Roger Savage. I'm a development officer at SAVS and we co-host these events with Southland on Sea Borough Council, the public health team um, and the Southland CCG team. Um, you'll see hovering in the background somewhere, Simon and Emma, if you can give us a wave, please. Simon and Emma um, are part of the team that support these events. They'll be there to help answer any questions or share links with you all in the chat. Um, we are recording the session this evening just for those that couldn't join us and want to catch up later. If you want to be edited out of the footage or um, maybe the audio if you speak, that's not a problem at all. If you just let us know, we can edit you out. Um, in terms of the format of this evening, it's gonna be similar to our other events that we've held. So we're very kindly joined by Krishna this evening, who's the Director of Public Health. He's gonna be giving us an update of the current situation in South End in terms of the pandemic and, and recovery. And then in the second part of the session, we're going to open up to all of you to provide you with an opportunity to ask any questions you might have, um, offer any suggestions or ideas that we can feed back to the teams, or just share any experiences that you might have had from the pandemic, um, vaccinations and testing. So without further ado, Krishna, I'm gonna hand over to you if that's okay for your update. Lovely, um, thank you, uh, Roger, uh, and good evening, everyone, uh, and good to see um, uh, some, I should say, familiar faces as well um, on here. So it's, um, I feel like part of the team as well now. Uh, so, um, so I'm going to do is just give you a brief update where we are, uh, and just a few um, uh, further, um, uh, if you want to update on some of the conversation uh, we are having nationally as we, uh, a step further into the um, uh, the easing of restrictions uh, down the uh, nationally agreed uh, roadmap. Uh, so as it is currently, our rates um, have um, reduced um, uh, quite drastically, certainly in the last two weeks. Uh, we are around 12 cases per 100,000 now. Um, and we seen currently as uh, one of the areas um, in the country that has um, progressed significantly in the last two to three weeks in terms of bringing the rates down. Uh, you know, so again, this is a a, a big um, uh, pat on the back for all of us, really, in the way we work together. Uh, and for me as Dr. Public Health, a big thank you for, for the community, for their response and support during those very, very difficult times. You know, we, we have never uh, been here before, uh, even in public health. We never thought we would ever go uh, this far in, in driving what is required. Uh, but as you've seen, uh, the, the necessity of bringing a lockdown and the restrictions that followed uh, has actually, um, you know, uh, led to a significant reduction in our better uh, management of, of cases in our communities. Uh, I think um, it's uh, it's fair to say that um, there has been a lot of learning uh, during 2020. Um, the approach um, that we have collectively taken between uh, PHE, public health directors, and the government has been to be consistent in our thinking and our approach in responding, so much so that a lot of other countries are now approaching us to ask us about our successes. Actually, we are more concerned about sharing um, what um, hasn't worked. Uh, obviously, the latest uh, we know now is uh, the uh, the large outbreak uh, and uh, significant impact. Um, this is happening in India uh, in, and, and the challenges they are facing there. 
So it's um, it's if you look at some of the studies there and, and, and understand what's happening, um, you know, it, it could easily have been us if we had not brought a lockdown in. They didn't break the lockdown in. They could have brought in a lockdown earlier in the year. Uh, certainly, they could have brought, brought a lockdown in, in late February and early, early March, and they would probably potentially have gained a lot more. Uh, talking to some colleagues today, so we had a regional doctor public health meeting uh, today, and on Tuesday we met with uh, uh, Chris Wheaty. So we have a weekly uh, meeting with Chris Wheaty as chief medical officer. Yeah, he meets with the doctor public health. Um, so we, um, we we were talking about um, the um, the lack of. Um, detailed information around the use of face covering and um, the effectiveness it has given that it had demonstrated over the last 15 years since the first COVID and um, well, actually the first SARS virus um, outbreak happened in, um, in Asia and Southeast Asia um, that um, there needs to be a lot more work as to the um, how effective uh, face covering can be um, in, in um, helping bring um, cases down you know it's not we, when we say face covering, we don't talk about face masks because you in a hospital will be using what we call FFP3, um, which really are highly effective against uh, pretty much any uh, any virus that is airborne. Uh, and we know as the uh, the virus is mutating, it will change its approach in that way. It will be uh, able to uh, target the human because you know it's looking for for a host. It's looking for his ability to bypass anything the host will throw at him um, in in fighting it off. Um, so that's why the mutations are, are happening all the time. So while we are in a good place in terms of our rate, um, we must not forget that the success of this has been not just the lockdown, it's about uh, those things we use to refer to as rules. Uh, now we just need to think about those things becoming a part of our lives and um, in us being able to continue our fight against um, COVID uh, for the foreseeable future as we improve um, our vaccination rate but also improve our ability to uh, to modify the vaccine uh, to respond to uh, to the threat of the virus mutating or, or bringing new variants out uh, so so far the um, in some ways um, we, we take some uh, some some strange comfort in the fact that the um, what is known as the kent uh, uk variant um, is currently the most virulent one uh, is much much stronger and more dominant than the indian variant uh, so it's almost in the similar sort of range um, of, of, of virus, um, if you want modification that goes alongside that, that one, which as you know, hit us very hard uh, at the beginning of, of December, you know, so much so that we were pre pretty much unprepared as to the pace at which it was going to move. Um, so this is, um, this is t t teaching all of us globally about um, how quickly a, um, a virus can mutate, uh, and we just need to be learning and using those learning to uh, better inform our response as we go forward in the future. The good news is, um, is that we're waiting for some further detail, but um, it is looking uh, very uh, likely that uh, all the vaccines currently are going to be working uh, very effectively against the uh, Indian mutant. So obviously, as we will have a lot of, of traveling and um, as we looking at uh, moving into step three, where some level of traveling uh, will, will be obviously be allowed. Uh, I suspect a lot of people who've been confined are, are, are probably um, itching to go and travel. Uh, so there will be risks. You know, I suspect a lot of people will avoid high risk areas. But as um, uh, Chris Whitty told us yesterday, well, you know, you, you, you may be in another part of the world and somebody's got um, this strain of the virus, uh, which you think you will get it somewhere else. 
So it's difficult to say where, where things will be, but it's managing that and knowing that the vaccine will continue to be effective in um, not, not preventing transmission necessarily, but certainly in helping people uh, uh, fight the virus uh, when they do get it in a more effective way. Uh, so the, um, the level of illness is far, far more, more reduced as we go along. So likelihood is, um, as I said before, uh, we will probably be getting um, a th third vaccine at some point in the winter, so we can um, continue to fight it. So the, the evidence suggests the, uh, currently suggests that um, the, uh, the effectiveness the effectiveness of the vaccine probably lasts about um, five to six months. So um, as we obviously have more, so people who've had the virus or people who've had uh, one or two vaccines, um, what will happen is their system will come on, will start working more and more in, uh, in start developing some level of immunity over a longer period of time. By the time we have a third booster, it may well be that we only need another booster, not dissimilar to the, uh, to the, flu, the, the flu jab. Uh, so that's, that's, uh, that's where we are with these, these things uh, as we go forward. Uh, so I think what we're looking forward to is um, the, the good news for us is um, the, uh, the having moved into step two of easing restrictions. Um, we, um, we are still able to maintain uh, vigilance and uh, people are still helping by uh, using some of those habits around hand, face and space that we've learned. But also as we move into, I was going to say warmer weather, but it has been cold, hasn't it? Let's be honest. I've had my heating on all week, two or three times, I think, a day. Um, it's um, ventilation is going to be very important, you know. Uh, so we are quite keen to ensure that um, people add that bit to the to the to the three motor we had the, the, the line of hand, face, and space, but also thinking about um, ventilation. So um, so managing and supporting and driving um, our approach locally is going to be really relying on our communities to support us um, while we effectively continue with the. Um, a successful uh, vaccination campaign. We're well ahead of the game, as you know. Um, it's technically on the um, Israel ahead of us um, in the way we are pushing our vaccination program. And it has uh, shown some level of hesitancy to uh, provide reassurance as we go forward. And so further uh, review undertaken currently about the, um, the impact of some of the vaccines, especially as you know, AstraZeneca. And, uh, and the very, very small cohort of people that uh, could um, become ill uh, from, from the vaccine. So, um, you know, as, um, as I quite remember, we talked about this on Tuesday, um, it's difficult to detect these things when actually 10 out of a million people potentially could be um, impacted by, by um, a vaccine. But then anyone could be impacted by a vaccine um, of any sort, not just the uh, COVID vaccine. So, um, so I think um, they are the key things uh, for us. I think um, for me, it's about reassuring people, but also saying that remember um, the, um, the, the the need for regular testing remains um, uh, an effective tool in our bag. Um, you know, I, I say regular, but I think what's important for for you all is to think about where have I been? Have I do I think I was at risk, or am I going to be seeing my friends, my family, or going out somewhere? You know what? Just take a test. Uh, as you know now, we've uh, we are moving away from um, uh, the testing in um, in community to what we call community collect. So you can collect your testing kits from a different a few points, so the library services, and now I believe uh, part one um, pharmacy or the pharmacies in Southend, um, you can now go and collect a, a testing kit, uh, an LFT testing kit. 
So, you know, go, go when you're going out, just collect a few kits and keep them at home. So for when you are going out or meeting friends and families, um, if everybody does um, that sort of, you know, it's a, it's a three minute job, as they say. Um, and um, you're in a better place because if you're positive, you just have to say, look, sorry, we've got cancelled this um, because we don't want to be spreading it. Um, it's as simple as that. Uh, but certainly as more and more people get vaccinated, um, that risk will reduce. Uh, it does help to reduce the um, level of transmission. It doesn't stop it, but it does reduce it. Um, so and hopefully the, um, the level of immunity that we are hoping to reach um, by the end of summer will help us move forward as well. So, so I will stop there um, and um, be happy to take um, any questions. Thank you, Roger. Brilliant, thank you very much for that, Krishna. Some really positive stuff in there. So we, we're gonna open up to the, the room now, the virtual room now for any questions that you might have. Um, I can see there's some in the chat and I can see there's some hands up, which is great. Before we do that though, I'm just gonna try and um, see if the person on the phone wanted to come in, give them an opportunity. And I think it might be May that's on the phone. Um, May, if you did want to come in, Emma's very kindly found out how you toggle between mute and unmute on your phone. So if you press the star key and then the number six, if you wanted to speak, that will take you off of mute. And then I guess if you didn't want to speak, um, I'll just give you... <laughs> Just give you a short time and we'll take it as you're here to listen, which is fine. Okay, mate, we'll, we'll let you um, listen in. And then if you did want to come in at any point, um, feel free to just, just drop in when you can. I can see that Ron's got his hand up. I'm gonna come to you, Ron, because if I keep you waiting, your hand might drop off. Thank you, Roger. Uh, just a very quick question. Um, I've started to play bowls again with friends in a socially distanced situation. Um, I understand what Christian is saying about being uh, of carrying out a, a, a test. How long after I've seen my friends should I wait before I take the test? Because obviously, instantly there, it won't be it won't show as evidence. But is, you know, three days later I could be ill. Um, so how how soon after actually? going out and seeing friends should I take the test yeah so so once you are exposed to somebody who who um, who has got um, who's carrying the virus you're looking at about 48 hours uh, before you um, start having a, a what we call um, the number of virus starting to uh, multiply in your body uh, so I think what's is important and um, actually most importantly to be honest with you is about best of all is for people to just before they meet each other because that way you are preventing it rather than uh, you, you go somewhere and then you, you test. I think if you were going to go, um, say for some reason you, you've gone to, to, to a shop and um, you, you just feel, well, you know, you were in a shop where you were the only one wearing your face mask and, and um, you were not too satisfied with um, the, how many people were crammed in, in a space. So it could be anywhere really. That somehow um, is, is probably best for you then to think about actually, you know, in a couple of days, you might want to take a test. Now, the risk is still reduced because you've been wearing a face covering. But for me, the prevention element of that is going to be when you're going to go out to meet uh, people, 
if you if you both or doesn't matter how many people are in the group, you know, if people all decide say actually let's all test before we go out, and then chances are if you test positive, you're not going to go out, or one of you're not going to go out. Um, and if you're in a household, the best is to avoid going out as, as a group of, of uh, to, to meet others as well. So that that is the approach we are looking for: is that element of preventing it to happen in the first place. So should I test when I come back? You you don't. I, my view, you know, if you're going to be socially distancing and things like that, and you're playing outdoors. To be fair, on actually, it doesn't really matter. I think the most important thing is for you to test before you go. And you, you suggest to your friends who are joining you, if you we, if you, everybody is saying, actually, let's just all test before we go and meet each other, the chances are you're just not going to get any transmission happening at all. Thank you. Okay. Thanks for that question, Ron. I'm going to come to you next, please, Reg. I can see you've got your virtual hand up. Yeah, so I'm not too sure if you, um, you can answer it, but uh, there's three rings, which is the... Um, the site for um, volunteers for the museums and libraries. I mean, it's not been updated by the council for over a year now. So it's showing everything as being open and for volunteers to, to register slots for, to, for doing work. Um, I'm just wondering if someone's gonna start updating it and tell us when the museums actually are gonna be open so we can start volunteering again. Yeah, so we'll make sure we'll take this back. So um, I think Emma is here, uh, or Simon, if we could take this back to the team, please, um, and let them know. Uh, because certainly uh, most of the um, uh, most of those spaces will be open from the 17th of May, as you know, this is when we move into step three. So we'll make sure the information is updated, Reg. Thank you. We'll, um, we'll get in contact with you after the meeting. Reg, once we've heard a response back, I've got your email, so we'll, we'll get that across to you. Thank you very much for that question there. I can't see any more hands in the room, so we'll go. Oh, sorry, Maureen. Hi there, Maureen. We'll come to you next. Uh, you, you said that you were going to start the third vaccination in the autumn, but you also said the vaccination lasted about five months. Well, what if we had our second jab in January, there's going to be a time when we're not covered. Yeah, so, so what's likelihood to be is you will have some, um, some element of protection. It's not going to be complete. Well, well, when we say six months, we're saying six months solid, you know you're well protected. Uh, but everyone has got um, uh, their immune system uh, will work differently. So what we are looking really is how best we target those who um, are more vulnerable. So what we used to call category one to four uh, in, in the uh, last, um, uh, in the way we were, we were vaccinating before. So what we're thinking about actually is potentially, if we can get to the end of the summer, because we know roughly during a period of time in, in, in the next few months, things will be uh, really, relatively calm, uh, then we're in a place where we can start vaccinating. So what is being done as well here, Kathy Maureen, is we are looking at um, um, a, there's some testing program or pilot program going on about the ability to vaccinate people for the flu and, uh, uh, and the Kobe jab at the same mm -hmm. time. And if that is proving successful, as we start the vaccination program for flu, we could also do the vaccination for COVID at the same time, which as you know, start at the late September, early October. So we should wait till we hear from our doctor, just wait for a phone yes. call. Yeah, oh, yes. thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Maureen. Thank you. I'm going to move to the chat now because we've got some questions in there and please feel free to add them as, as we work through them. The first 
In the UK, we are always told that nobody has ever caught COVID when on the beach, even when full. However, in India, they have hot weather and most have very basic shacks with plenty of ventilation. So why are they having such huge numbers of COVID? Yeah, so I think it's, uh, we, we live in very different um, communities. Um, so I, I've said this before, uh, and I know I've seen a lot of the footing as well, footage as well last, last summer, for example, where it appears that people are completely crammed on, on beaches. Um, but actually, if you were looking at, um, you know, a, what we call a helicopter view of, of it, um, it was not always the case. So it may well be where cases um, where people were crammed together, nobody actually was positive and they were not transmitting any, any, any infection and it was a luck more than anything else. But I know in South End certainly, we didn't have that level of, um, of mixing at density. People were spacing enough um, so really you're looking at uh, over one meter uh, to minimize the risk of, of any, any, any spreading going on, especially when it's outdoor, the risk is, is reduced. Now, the, um, the, the, so what we've heard um, and, 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 uh, on Tuesday uh, in terms of feedback from, from uh, the CM or the Chief Medical Officer uh, has been that um, the, 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 the way that people live there um, and the way people greet each other hasn't changed. Uh, and more importantly, they were having a lot of election rallies where up to a million people were attending. And, and because of a lot of lockdown in some of the states, people who worked in the cities or cramming on the trains and going back to the, to, to the villages uh, in their drones. So that, that, that so concentration of people is what, what really caused the concern. And if you, you, you were following the news, um, uh, over the weekend when um, a number of um, doctors in London were very disappointed about the anti-lockdown uh, anti demonstration going on, reminding people that we are taking a risk here. Having contained things so well in London, having these things are not going to help us at all. So it's about us thinking about uh, those things, you know, when, when um, so you've got different level of literacy as well, you know, in India, you're looking at 1.3 billion people so for, for people who are not actually computing what that is, that's the whole of Europe, North America, and the whole of Southeast Asia put together. Yeah. So, and these people live in densely populated areas, you know, uh, actually South End is very densely populated, I always say that. Um, so if you take Westboro and you multiply that by two, this is how challenging it is for them. So they pass it on very quickly. Thank you, Krishna. And we've got a couple of questions from Alex now. Um, and Alex's first question is around the booster jabs. So um, when are they being offered? And will the booster have to be the same vaccine as jabs one and... I lost Roger there. Hello, can you hear me now? Yeah, so did you yeah. say, should, should the third vaccine be the same as the first and the second one? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, so this is also something they're looking at currently. Um, there is um, there's something that um, they, they feel uh, needs to be reviewed uh, because certainly um, the suggestions as it stands uh, is in terms of uh, higher level of immunity. Uh, it's uh, the Novavax and the Pfizer vaccines are the ones that are giving the highest level of, of immunity and resistance uh, to, to the virus. So likelihood is, is likely to be those two vaccines that could be rolled out first. 
uh, in terms of a, a third vaccine. So I suspect the view is currently um, from uh, the, the, the global scientists that there should be no reason why we can't mix, mix it. We chose not to do that in, in this stage because we wanted to make sure uh, that enough uh, research has been undertaken uh, since the end of last year to be able to inform that decision. Brilliant, thank you, Krishna. And then there's a second question from Alex that we have, um, which is around testing. Um, if you have been vaccinated twice, will you need to have a test? And is there any chance that the test can be more benign, e.g. a saliva test? Uh, I don't know. I mean, there are there are other tests on the market, but they have not been fully validated and certified, um, you know, like saliva testing, uh, for, for example. Um, I think we we need to wait uh, for some of those to come out uh, on the market. I, I, I agree with you. Um, the, um, the, the current LFD testing are not the most pleasant thing. I know because I do them all the time. Um, are not the pleasant thing to, 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 to undertake. So ideally, we want something a lot more amenable to do, should we say. But it needs to be robust. We can't just use anything. So uh, we're quite keen to look at those. I mean, people who, um, we know for certain that people who are vaccinated can carry the virus. And some of them have um, the ability to transfer it as well. And that's certainly from the studies we've seen so far. Uh, so I think um, as we go forward, um, we, we may choose that at a point in time, we may decide actually we may not need to test anymore, but I don't know when that's going to be. Is that going to be at the end of this year? Is it going to be the end of next year? Uh, but for the time being, it remains a tool in our toolbox and we should be using it. Thank you, Krishna. Did that answer your question, Alex? Uh, yes, it did. Just one final one. Um, if you've been vaccinated twice, would that affect the test result in terms of antibodies? I don't understand whether or not tests alter the, you know, vaccinations alter the test in some way or make it less valid or confuse it, complicate it. Yeah, no, I think the, the indication currently, Alex, is, is not an issue as such. Uh, but I think what we are moving to into the space is make sure that, as you said, is that we are not picking the remnant of antibody reaction to, to uh, or production from, from having had the second vaccine, especially. Uh, so um, the, the, the view currently is, um, uh, as necessary, is best to assume that getting two vaccines is not going to, is going to protect you, but it's not going to stop you necessarily carrying the virus. Uh, if you're going to go to a high-risk area, then the best thing is to do a test. If you're uncertain what the outcome of the test is, then the best thing to do there is to consider having a PCR test. This is why we reintroduced, if you remember, we suspended the, the need for a PCR testing, uh, which is a confirmatory test, um, but we have now reintroduced that um, also to enable sequencing of, any, uh, of anyone who tests positive, so we know which uh, of the variant they've got. Okay, thank you. Thanks, Alex. I can see that Simon and Emma have put lots of information in the chat as well, if you all wanted to take a look at that. Um, the next question is from Elaine, who asks, what is the age range being called for the vaccination now? Uh, as at yesterday, I believe uh, it's going to go down to 42 now, if I'm not mistaken. Um, those who are 42 and over who have not been vaccinated are being invited now. So the aim is before the end of May to ensure that everybody over the age of 35 uh, have been vaccinated. Uh, the main reason for that is that 90% of parents 
um, uh, they they are in that age range, uh, 35 to 48, I think is um, what we were told. Uh, so ideally, uh, what um, we, the Chief Medical Officer has been pushing and asking the JCVI, you know, the, the national group who um, advise on who get test, uh, who get vaccinated next, to uh, to consider uh, allowing for earlier groups to be vaccinated by the end of May. Right. Thank you. Thank you, Elaine. The next question, Krishna, is from Leanne, who asks. Is there any prediction on how long wearing a mask around others will be standard practice? Will this likely cease when we move to annual boosters as per the flu, or is it dependent on the rate, or is this our new normal? I think, uh, so there are a number of things here we've got to take uh, into consideration. And um, I think uh, what has, uh, what have we achieved uh, with uh, wearing uh, the face mask this, this winter? Actually, not only has it helped us to fight this virus, it's also helped us to fight um, the flu uh, in, in the community. Uh, so there are other, uh, for example, other ways we measure that, uh, not just, you know, if you ask a GP, say what flu, we didn't have much flu this year at all. Um, but we also do um, wastewater uh, testing, and, um, and that tells us uh, what sort of virus has been in the system. Um, and um, there has been very, very, very little uh, um, pigments uh, in terms of collecting um, those samples to suggest that there's been any flu uh, in, in the country. You could almost say there's been no flu at all. Um, so it, it is obviously um, an effective barrier in protecting us against those. Now, my, I think I've said this before, my approach going forward will be um, in the foreseeable future and certainly in the winter for me, I think if I'm going to, uh, to areas that I feel are going to be very busy, um, I am quite keen to wear a face covering. So going to, the, to a big shop, for example, in a grocery shop, um, I'm quite keen to do that. I would like to think it's, um, it's not about standard practice. I think it's going to be whether people choose to wear them or not, which is what's happening if, you rem if, you, if, you, if you're aware. In Southeast Asia, when they had the first SARS virus in 2003, um, they, um, the, the population started to wear it and then realized they were getting benefit from um, pollution as well from it. So more and more people start to use it in, in densely populated cities as well. So it's, it is one of those things, you, you make a choice. And I like to think, uh, I don't see uh, the hand, face and space uh, as a set of rules anymore. I see them really as a habit that we may choose to use when we feel we, it's best for us to use it. Um, I, I suspect with the way things are going, the government will uh, uh, pretty much ease, if not remove um, all the restrictions uh, by the um, 21st of, of June, which is step, uh, step four of the roadmap. And it will be down to people to to make a judgment as to what they want to do, you know, and uh, and hopefully we are we get to be better prepared. We'll have a, a good level of immunity to prevent illness, not to prevent the, the spread of the virus necessarily, uh, that uh, we will be able to manage better in the autumn and winter. You know, the, the, the challenge will be here because fewer people will be wearing the face mask um, that uh, we may be fighting COVID and the flu at the same time. So, so it'd be challenging. So it is going to be down to people thinking what's best for them. Thank you, Krishna. And for your question, Leanne, I can see Chris G has got a hand up. Can we come to you next, please, Chris? I was just wondering if now Southend is looking at long-term plans to deal with the huge amount of people uh, whose operations, treatment, 
um, has been halted um, and looking at the way to um, get through those operations and that treatment. And apropos of that, if, and I hope there isn't, there should be a third wave, how will it be dealt with? Because one thing is sure, that we can't go through this again, particularly with these people who are not now getting their treatment. Um, we have a huge problem on our hands. People are going to die. So I wonder, or I think you should be looking long-term at stringent plans about how we will deal with that or the hospital will deal with that. Yeah, absolutely, Chris. So this has already been in, in the planning since January. Uh, so the intention was, uh, and this is why uh, the international travel has been that we needed a lockdown. Uh, we needed to curb the increase so that we can try and, and get people who needed urgent uh, care outside of COVID. Because let's, let's not forget, we, we count the number of people who died from COVID. We haven't counted the number of people. And if you look at the ONS data, the National Office National Statistics data, it will tell you how many other people died where the excess death were outside of COVID-related death. So, so there is here the need for recovery. The recovery started in February. And um, we are now, um, as at last week, in Southern Hospital, for example, almost at the pace where we, should, we, we were before, uh, before uh, November, where we're now back to operating people who need not just urgent care, but emergency, uh, sorry, um, uh, high-risk high uh, patients are now being managed also through the hospital. So we're going to see a recovery position that will probably take us into September. Uh, where, are we going to have a third wave? The likelihood is very, very likely. Uh, how bad will it be? It's all dependent on a number of things, including the level of immunity in the community, whether there is a new strain we, we need to be fighting, uh, but actually how much have we learned as a collective, as a wider community, to better work with the system so that we keep that, you know, that, that increase, as they call it, a flat curve. So we don't have a huge demand increase in the hospital just for COVID-related issues. Well, I, I think, I, I desperately hope that is the case because the COVID hospitals were created and then closed, and those are what we need. We cannot have our hospitals taken over by COVID once again, should it happen, because I, I don't see this backlog of patients being dealt with. I personally know a lot of people and they are very, very ill and they're just not being dealt with. The hospital is just in chaos from my point of view, from what I've seen and what I've experienced in my own family. Yeah, Chris, you, you make an extremely good point about the Nightingale Hospital that, that had been created. Actually, you know, I am not here to do strategy for, for the government. I'm here to respond to local uh, issues. But, but certainly here, it's, it, it is a case that you we should be thinking about whether the creation of Nightingale Hospital should be the first point of, of call in, in COVID-related issues while we keep the local hospital carrying because we should not be creating another uh, extension to the waiting list, as, as you say. I totally agree with that. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I hear these things. I'm, I'm afraid it, it takes a lot for me to believe it because it, it is reality. And I know we just cannot give the hospital over to COVID again. Anyway, I have to thank, thank you very much. Thank you, Grace. I can see that um, Amanda has put something in the chat. Amanda, are you there? Amanda's from the CCG and might be able to add to this. Hi, Roger. Sorry I was late joining. I was in another meeting. Um, I have put something in the chat which our um, Director of Operations shared 
um, following the last COVID conversations. Um, and Leanne, thank you for your what is priority too. I'm going to have to get clarification on that. Um, I think they are going through the lists. I think we have to appreciate that, you know, this is the COVID has put a huge impact on hospital um, services. Um, and it's going to take some time to recover. And I think we need to be mindful of that. Um, but the what I've put in the chat came from the say the, the, the director of operations for the CCG. I will get some clarification while you're chatting on priority two, Leanne, because I'm not clear. I'm not that's not my I'm not in the hospital and I'm I'm not sure what the priority two is, but I will seek clarification before the meeting ends and pop it in the chat for you. Thank you, Amanda. Okay, thanks, Amanda. Um, and if anyone has any more questions around the hospital, feel free to email them across to me and we can liaise with the hospital team and the CCG to get those answered for you um, outside of the meeting. Amanda, you've got your hand up. Yeah, yeah, I just think if, if people feel that it would be, um, you know, it, it would be helpful to have somebody like my colleague um, James Currell to attend a future meeting, you know, now we are sort of coming out of the, the lockdown period just to talk about hospital demands and waiting lists, then I'm sure we can arrange something for a future meeting if people are keen to, to hear from, from you know, on, on that um, aspect. Also long COVID, that's something else we're going to be looking at, I, I guess, going forward. So, um, you know, if you can let Roger know if that's something they're interested in, we can certainly make sure somebody um, from that appropriate team attends a future meeting. Yeah, I, I think I, I would say, I think it's not just by being interested, I, I support that. I think we, we should add it to our regular update that we talk about on COVID and the recovery in the hospital as well. I think Chris has made a good point here. And Amanda, thank you for that. Brilliant. Thank you, everybody. Matt, can I come to you next? I can see you've got your hand up. Yeah, thank you, Krishna, for your really helpful update. Um, you said that everybody's predicting a third wave. I wondered if you could just say a little more about that when you think it might be or when they everybody thinks it might be and um obviously if we've all had our vaccine i'm struggling to get my head around a third wave but um it'd be helpful for you to just explain a little more please yeah yeah okay so so the prediction um, as it stands um we we have made a decision not to um, go into the detail of the prediction that were released um, at the end of march uh, the reason being that um it didn't consider a number of factors and um, it indicated that there's likelihood that um, we could see um, the, the start of a third wave as early as August, um, uh, or early, early August, actually. Uh, so a certain conversation we've had with Chris Whitty uh, is um, the, some of the factors, for example, not taken on board, is um, understanding the pace at which we are moving the vaccination program. So as I said, um, uh, most people will be very well protected once they've had the vaccine but not everyone is 100% protected. No one will be 100% protected. And some people will be less protected than others. So we believe potentially it could be anything between 10 and 15% of those who receive the vaccine who could still show some signs where they may or may not need help or, may or where they may or may not be uh, admitted to hospital as well. Uh, so that is significantly lower than it would have been if um, the vaccination program were not in place. So, so the other issue behind that is um, why we push for it in public health um, to reach what we call um, a, a population level immunity. You're looking at 95%, at least 95% of the population being immunized. And then you can reach that element of, um, of immunity where actually the 5% are least likely 
to uh, to uh, cause uh, major outbreaks in, in in a community, you know, regardless of what that community is, is district or it might be the country. Um, so what we've got with uh, with the with the vaccination program are a number of things. So first of all, remember our priority currently is to vaccinate people um, age eighteen and over, but obviously we've extended that to potentially include those at risk in the uh, age uh, sixteen to seventeen as well. So that means there's going to be quite a large proportion of the population under that age who are not going to be vaccinated and they're going to make more than 5% of the population. You also have those people who do not want to be vaccinated or are still hesitant. Hopefully those who are hesitant will uh, move their position and feel that they've now been given inf enough information to make a decision that will help them uh, take the vaccine. But we may not reach enough in terms of people wanting to, to take the vaccine as well. So you then have another cohort of, of the population who then do not uh, acquire immunity because you either acquire immunity through vaccine or having had uh, COVID before. So, so while we then, then need to work out what proportion of people who would not be vaccinated, including children under the age of, um, of 16, what proportion of these people would have had the COVID uh, in itself and, and acquire the, the immunity and, uh, and then be able to start working out what are the risks to the population. So the data, uh, if you look at it that way, indicates that actually we may reach 75% of the population being immunized, uh, but it might be less than that if you include the fact that we may not be able to immunize others. We could push it to 80%. So what we have been, been doing, um, or the global community have been doing around, uh, around uh, immunology is to look at how safe is it to vaccinate children between the age of 12 and, um, and, and 16. Because as you know, most of uh, being parents, you would have known that when you get to a certain age uh, in childhood, you can start taking medication from the age of, of 12 when you hit uh, puberty, uh, because you start reaching the same level as adult uh, to be able to cope with, with those things. So they're testing that currently, because if we can immunize those between the age of 12 and, and, and 15 uh, safely, then what we will get is a higher proportion of people potentially who will be immunized and the level of immunity will rise in the population, which means then it reduces that risk. But it's a big but, we are not there yet, uh, so the, the, the risks is uh, those who are unvaccinated, those who have not been, uh, uh, not had acquired immunity because they got COVID, um, are likely to still uh, be the vector or the, the people who transfer, uh, transmit the, uh, the, 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 the virus at a larger scale. So some of those will, people will, will, will be ill. So, so that's why we feel that um, the, that's when the third wave will come. So we are looking at the, 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 the elsewhere in the country. Now, where if you look at um, uh, how things have happened in the rest of the world. So we talk about the Northern and Southern Hemisphere. So in the Northern part of the, of the planet currently, we are in, um, we, we, we are about to enter the summer. So we've left winter, if you want, although I'm not quite calling this summer currently. It's a bit cold out there, isn't it? Um, it's, um, but if you think about it that way, those countries in Europe where they've had a bigger wave again, a third wave, they've had it at the end, the, the end tail of winter. So it was really, really cold when, when, when it's then. And we know that these, these viruses tend to operate at, at scale during the colder weather. Um, and if you then look at some of the countries in the Southern Hemisphere, for example, take Chile, where they've had a large uh, third wave as well. It started at the, when the weather got really cold because Chile, most of Chile is very cold, to be honest. It's only the top part of Chile that's, that's quite warm. 
Um, and um, so they've so you can see already that the changes in weather is what then impacts on this as well. So while everybody's trying to minimize as quickly as they can, and in India got nowhere near that, and they've got, as you know, a mix of weather, cold and hot, uh, everybody's getting hit um, at, at the same pace in those places where they, they've not had their immunization. So it's um, that is that is the fact uh, with that um, in some ways, and um, it's it is not something we can depart from. So we are planning for the third wave, and um, and we believe um, with um, the way we've managed it, we're no longer to be we're not going to be responding to an outbreak. We're going to be managing continuously the outbreak for the foreseeable future, which we say is between the next twelve well we say twelve months from from April beginning of April. For the next 12 to 15 months we're going to be managing it so we keep the curve very very flat throughout the, the period of um, autumn and winter. So this is why I was saying if people think about those things we, th we thought about as rules, how do we apply them as habits? If more people do this, the chances are we're going to keep it, we're going to suppress it to very very low level. I hope that's, uh, I was trying to explain this in as simple a way as possible. I hope I'm making sense. Yeah, I'm just wondering when to book my holidays, obviously. Matt, you're not the only one. I got asked this question <laughs> for anyone who listened to the radio on Monday with me and my Google TV, that probably Cathy in Essex. Uh, he, he disagreed with me and said, uh, oh, people should book their holiday. I'll book my holiday. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it is challenging. Uh, I think the, um, the, the issue would be about other countries accepting people, uh, us coming into their country as well. Uh, I think this is the conversation. I was part of the uh, cabinet office. I was one of the four that was public health uh, advising the cabinet office on things like vaccine passport, for example. What we didn't want is um, different agencies taking different views about it. Uh, we want the government to have a very clear approach how they're going to do that. Um, and uh, for those people who want to travel, there'll be countries who say they were happy to accept people with one vaccination, two vaccination, or people will need to do a test. Uh, if you're under a certain age, you will need to do, uh, because you're not going to get vaccinated, you need to get a test here or get a test there, whatever it may be. There'll be different ways of doing it. Um, so I, my advice currently is um, uh, you've got to think about uh, what you're booking. If you're booking something, make sure that um, you, you're going to get your money back if something happens. Uh, or you're prepared to go into um, uh, into self-isolation uh, in, in some countries, for example. Um, I, I, was, I was born in Mauritius. Um, my mum is not very well currently, uh, but none of us can go and, and, and see her because if you go to Mauritius, you have to spend 14 days in isolation. So, uh, so you can imagine, it's not possible for me to do that. So, and there are places sometimes you go and then suddenly something changes and then uh, you, you are in, in trouble as well. So you've got to balance those things, uh, Matt. Um, uh, so my, this is my personal view. I'm going to wait to the very last minute to make a decision whether I will take that view and whether I'm, where I'm going is not going to be a risk uh, before I do that because I have missed, I've not really had a holiday. Uh, I was supposed to be in Cuba in, in March this year, which I booked uh, years ago. Luckily, uh, the agent told me, do not book a flight because I can't guarantee you're going to get your money back. But my agency has given us a, a voucher to, to go anytime over the next three years uh, on holiday. And so, so it, it is a risk you need to take. And I think the government has been very careful not to just tell people to do what they want to do. And then suddenly, you know, this travel industry, the in industry might turn around and say, we are, we are not doing this. Or the in insurance industry might say, we're not, we're not going to cover that. Um, and then it puts people out of pocket. And then you've got 
the additional cost that may come with it with testing and all this stuff, which is not fair to people. So I think it's 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 a very personal decision, and you got to be careful. I would say, watch for what happens after the 17th of May, because if rates are going to go up again, it will be when we move into step three, because we can mix indoors. Yeah, and that's where the challenge will be, and that's what we get to watch for. But holidays, yes, Matt, I totally agree with you. I just need my my toes in the very warm sand somewhere. Just like most of you will be thinking as well. South End Beach, surely, Krishna. Well, I, I, I live down here, as you know. Um, so, yes, I, <laughs> I went through that last year, but it was very busy, so I was avoiding it as well. Great. Thank you very much for that, Matt and, and Krishna. So we've got 10 minutes left of the session. There's three more questions that we've got in the chat, Krishna, and then um, we, can, we can close the meeting by coming back to you. There's a follow-on question around the third wave from Julie. Um, who says, if a third wave is likely to happen in August, is it wise to open nightclubs on the 21st of June, given that most people that attend nightclubs will not be having their vaccines until July? That is a very good point, isn't it? So, so I think um, the, if we were adjusting the modelling, um, we are probably looking at a third wave starting in late September, early October realistically, based on those the other issues I've just discussed with you. Um, should nightclubs be open? Um, it's a big question. I suspect if you ask any data public health, we'll be saying really not a good idea. Uh, people who, you know, when alcohol is involved, um, the, the notion of any social distancing or things like that are, are going to be challenging. And as you rightly said, um, is it Julie who said that, is it? Yeah, as you rightly said, um, Julie, is. Um, it is going to be a cohort of people who probably would not be vaccinated until later on, but we think hopefully by the end of July, they would be. Um, so the advice that SAGE had given the government is actually stage uh, step four should not be any earlier than the beginning of, September, uh, of July, sorry. Uh, but you know, the government's made the decision to be the 21st of June. Uh, let's hope that, that the data uh, I mean, they, they, the government has always said that, that, that it's all driven not by the date, but by the data. And the data so far is indicative that we can move into step three, but we've got to watch out the impact of step three. That's important as well. Great. Thank you, Krishna. And thank you for your question, Julie. The next question is from Jean. May I ask if the take-up of vaccine by BAME in Southend is improving? She's not sure if the data is available to report on yet. Um, we have got data. What we haven't got, which is a real challenge, is we are doing in this in a year, 10 years after the last census, the data we've got, the, what we call the denominator, the, the basic um, data of the population, we can only have adjusted figures for the last 10 years. So it's difficult to use those figures to be, ex to be quite clear whether we have actually made any progress or not. So, so what we're waiting for is um, a, a bit of additional modeling, because obviously, as you know, we've all done the census this year, but the data is not going to be available until September, October time, because it does take a lot of, a lot of time to process the data. And, and but public, I think, have done some work to help us understand the migration that's happened in those last uh, five years. So, so we're hoping to be able to get a better position on the BAME community so we can work on that. But, you know, we got a very clear plan 
uh, between the CCG and the Public Health Canada and the team at the Council to work together on that. And there is a, an additional piece of um, money that uh, has been given to us locally uh, to work with people who have a concern, either from the BME community, but also those who are uh, worried about not understanding uh, the uh, what we call it vaccine hesitancy concerns, uh, to work with them in their communities uh, to try and support them understand. Because I, I have people sometimes send me emails say, does this mean this if I have the vaccine? And, uh, and clearly, they then send me something that they've seen on, on, on Instagram or, or Facebook, which obviously, you know, there are people who will just say things without looking at the evidence. Um, and I think it's uh, it does make it difficult for people. But I haven't got this data as we would like to have it. We've been waiting for this for a long time. I was hoping to report on my health protection board um, two weeks on this. Um, but we are still, fingers crossed, um, we, we get told every week it's going to be this Friday. Um, but as soon as we get it, um, I will be looking at um, probably agreeing with the Health Protection Board on putting this on our, our coronavirus website so people can see the data and how it's improving as well. So we did a bit of work on that with the care homes and um, especially those who work in care homes. And um, with the support we've, we've given to into that, um, we've seen in, in, it's a rapid increase in people uh, taking the vaccine. So, so I think at least I'm, I'm confident because I know the numbers of what they are. Uh, but for these, I would be reluctant to give you figures that I don't know myself. I know the numbers of people being vaccinated, but I can't tell you what, what proportion of that is in the community. Thank you, Krishna. I can see Jean gave a thumbs up there. Thank you very much. And we've got a question from Bruce and Jackie Krishna, and then one more that Alison has snuck in there. Um, so if that's okay, we'll just do these final two. Um, Bruce and Jackie ask, will all groups eventually be offered a booster vaccine? Uh, so this is something that the JCVI and the Chief Medical Officer are working on currently. Um, I, I suspect there will be an initial prioritization that will need to happen. Um, and, um, and there is also a, a piece of work being undertaken for those under the age of 50 um, in terms of understanding uh, what level of immunity do, are they able to sustain once they've had the second jab. Uh, so that is also going to inform the national travel. But I suspect as we start, uh, we've as I said the, the, the pilot being done on the flu and the COVID at the same time, as we start the, the flu jab campaign, uh, season, the likelihood is those who would receive them as a high priority will be the first people who will get it again. Um, and then there will be a view about where, where we go with it um, in, in, in the future. So it's something that needs to be decided. It will be a political decision, as you know, with these things. Um, but it will be advised by, um, by uh, the national uh, JCBI group as well. Great. Thank you, Krishna. And then the final question that we have for this evening is from Alison, who asks, do we know if the antibodies from someone having had COVID last longer than those after the vaccine? Oh, I don't know that actually. I, I can't say I know the answer to that. Um, I have not heard anyone mention that before, but I'll, uh, I'll put this one out to my colleagues in PHE and see what they say. And we'll come back to you if I, there's an answer, there's no answer, then we'll just tell you we don't know. I should have had them back to my Krishna. You were doing so well, and then I threw that one in at the end. I know, I know. There had to be one, and in exactly three minutes before we were supposed to finish. Yeah, ask me the impossible question, but there you go. I'll, I'll, I'll have to buy you lunch for that. You <laughs> outside of the meeting. Um, just before I hand over to Krishna to close, I'd like to say a big thank you to 
Emma, Simon, Amanda for all of their support as always with this meeting. Um, and also to all of you for continuing to come along, um, supporting the community in Southend and taking part in these events. So thank you very much. And I'll hand over to you, Krishna. Lovely, thank you, Roger. Again, from me as well, a big thank you to all our colleagues who are here. And I think the, uh, the point made um, uh, by Amanda following Chris's comment, um, we'll ensure that we'll um, put some more on recovery uh, and hospital management as well in terms of uh, helping catch up with uh, those who uh, are on the waiting list. So we'll, we'll endeavor to do that. So um, uh, looking at Roger, who um, is the uh, maestro on these things, uh, make sure we are able to get Amanda and Amanda's colleagues to come from the NHS as well to support us. But for me, again, it's um, it's been a, a very exciting um, uh, session with you all. Uh, I feel I learn uh, something new every day, uh, including the impossible question you ask me sometimes as well. Uh, but it's, um, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm here to continue to support you and, and find ways of, of doing things. But equally, you know, I totally rely on, on you and the community to support us in being successful in our approach. And thank you all for keeping the rates down and keep getting that message out to your communities. Let's do everything we can do because we don't want lockdown. We want to remove as many restrictions as we can um, and uh, and try to get some some new normality in our lives. Uh, but I also accept that things have changed. You know, who, who thought that that public health would be working from home uh, for over 14 months? And I never heard of that before, you know, so, um, but it's, um, it's, things have changed and we, we've got to accept those. And um, but I, it's a big thank you uh, to you all in the community for, for the support we've had. You know, I, I, I feel very proud to work in South End and work with you guys. Thank you.